Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Squadron Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, let's uh let's catch up with everybody. Let's talk about what we've been up to in the last week. I think last week I mentioned that uh, the day after I was recording, I was going into a Disneyland park for the first time in over a year, uh, Disney California Adventure, which is right across the you know the way from Disneyland Park, was opening their doors for a ticketed food festival event. It's called the Taste of Disney. Um, I guess it really doesn't even matter if I recommend or not recommend this to you because it's already sold out and it's sold out in minutes. So <laughs> if you don't have a ticket, you can't go. If you have a ticket, uh, good news is you'll have a fun time. Uh, it, it was uh, really enjoyable to be back in the park again and to just soak in the atmosphere of Cars Land and Pixar Pier and eat at Lamplight Lounge. And uh, the, the, the good thing about this food festival is that they incorporated a lot of the famous Disneyland foods, uh, things like Dole Whips and turkey legs and, uh, you know, all, all the stuff from the Monte Cristo from the Blue Bayou. I, I got to have that for the first time in over a year. And uh, it, it was great to eat all the things, to uh, see characters from a distance. It, it was very strange. Like they they were putting the characters at... um. At a distance that if you were going to take a selfie with you and the character, the character I don't think would even be visible in the selfie. <laughs> they were like, like you know, hundreds of feet away. <laughs> it was, I'm not sure what the regulations were for that, but uh, we did a video for Ordinary Adventures. I'll link that in the show notes. Uh, it was interesting. I think this is an interesting time that we live in. And uh, it seems like the theme parks are going to be opening at, uh, you know, the end of April. And uh, that's going to be the Hunger Games for Disney fans. Because <laughs> if, if, if a, you know, even to get um, tickets to this event was like really, really hard. 
And then after that, to to get a reservation for one of the, like the sit down restaurants, there's two sit down restaurants there. There's Carte Circle and there's the Lamplight Lounge, which is like this awesome lounge. It's themed after Pixar and it has the lobster nachos and has all these like awesome drinks and food there. And <laughs> to even get reservations for one of those sit down restaurants was like this all day ordeal where you had to get on your computer at 7 a.m. and like wait for a return time for a virtual queue. It, it, it was a pain in the butt. So I, I can't imagine when when Disneyland actually reopens uh, to the very limited capacity. I think they've said maybe 15 percent, which sounds tiny. Uh, there was almost nobody when we were there at Disney California Adventure for this event. I, I think the capacity might be higher than that. I think it was like 30 percent. And I don't know that. I'm just assuming. So I'm making claims that I don't know. But it, it, it really seemed rather empty. So I can't imagine when, when tickets go on sale that uh, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be a very hard ticket to get. Uh, but <laughs> and it's also funny because I don't know if this is funny or sad, but knots. I've talked about knots in the past of them doing these food festivals. They've been doing them for around 40 to $45 and you get five tastings with that admission price and universal did a similar thing it was 45 or 50 dollars and you got five tastings uh with uh disney they were charging people 75 dollars and with that 75 dollars you didn't get five tastings you got a 25 dollar dining gift card which um if you're kitra and you got the lobster nachos i paid for one item of food and not five and yeah the event sold out in minutes. Anyways, okay. Uh, if you want to check that out, I'll put the link to Ordinary Adventures in the show notes. Jacob, what have you been up to? Yeah, last week I wasn't on the water cooler because I was at the online South by Southwest Film Festival. And our coverage is all live on the site. It was pretty low-key compared to past years. It was me and a few handful of writers who usually cover the festival for us anyway, all writing from home. And I will say that once things were up and running, uh, attending it was really easy it was a really good platform you can just mark what you want to see and sit, you can save it for later and watch it on your own you know volition and it, everything seemed to stream really well and it all had very few hiccups i will say that getting everything synced up like proving yourself in southwest that you had <laughs> um permission to watch these and then essentially trying to get from the main south with the southwest site to the online southwest site and proving you're the same account was such a complex process that took the, the entire South by coverage team, a massive text message thread, trying to figure out how each of us did it. Cause we all did it by accident. At some point, we, we still all think any of us are, are sure how we managed to actually access it without like, without no, while knowing what we were actually doing. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious. I didn't, for those of you who had Sundance this year, the online Sundance, was it easy to, to get everything hooked up or was it also a pain in the butt? I found it to be very easy, like shockingly. So I was sort of anticipating the worst and was pleasantly surprised to see how smooth it was. But it seems like everything was more centralized for Sundance uh, than what you're describing here. What uh, Jacob, how was the quality of selections compared to, you know, previous festivals at South by? South by usually has a lot of major, major premieres, like big Hollywood movies that bring in the stars, bring in the directors, and you know, bring a lot of eyeballs. And, and, and you're like yeah. talking about the level of movies like A Quiet Place or Zombieland. Yeah, or, yeah. And this year didn't have any of that. Like last year was supposed to be the premiere of A twenty four's The Green Knight, which you know <laughs> nowhere to be seen still. Uh, this year, 
it felt very much like a low-key South by Southwest with fewer movies and almost no headliners. Their, their big headliners were mostly music docs, and South by Southwest has always had a big music doc scene. It's always been a very important part of the fest, but there was definitely nothing like truly huge. In fact, I'd argue that the biggest releases, uh, the biggest premieres, like, in terms of, of like things people already know about, tended to be the TV premieres, which we'll talk about you know soon enough. I have some reviews on uh, on the site as well. Um, but yeah, but in terms of actual programming, even though there weren't as many movies as usual, it felt very much in line with past years. A lot of interesting indies, a lot of offbeat dramas, a lot of documentaries. It was you know a slice of the usual festival experience, but it's very, very clear that most people would rather have their movies play at a you know traditional on-location festival. Yeah. So what you're saying is this whole pandemic is not going to pivot this whole film festival scene into a virtual film festival? I can't imagine it. I I can't imagine that. I also will say that we had one of our writers try to get a screener for a movie in advance because it was like conflicting with, you know, certain other things in the schedule. And the PR person told him, we can't send you a screener for this film because we want you to have the true South by Southwest experience. Like sitting at home, watching it on on a computer screen. (laughs) Come on. Let's not kid ourselves. What a stupid thing to say. Uh, Well, yeah, they're, they're trying to make up some reasoning, Jacob. They got to pull something out of their butt. So, uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Uh, well, not to bum everybody out, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just a thing that, that happened that I feel like I need to talk about. Um, we had uh, the memorial service for my dad this past weekend. Um, we had put it off uh, from happening earlier in, in February, um, not too long after he had passed, simply because the weather around here at that time was awful. It was like sub-zero temperatures. We knew that some people would be coming in from out of town for it. And so we just wanted to make it as safe as possible. And we also knew that around this time, the vaccine would be more widespread, uh, especially people around my parents' age would have gotten the uh, the vaccine, at least their first dose. And actually pretty much everyone around has gotten their second dose uh, as well. So um, yeah, it was, you know, um, really touching and heartwarming just to see the, the turnout there was. It's, um, I honestly don't think that my dad really knew the impact he had on people's lives because he just, he helped so many people without ever expecting anything in return and was just that kind of guy. And so people from his coworkers to fraternity brothers that he hadn't seen in decades and, uh, family and friends and just so many people turned out and we were just all, uh, very touched. And so, yeah, it was, um, it was tough and it was a sad day, but it also provided some much needed, uh, warmth and closure for my family. And, you know, obviously this is something that's, it's not over, you know, I know there'll be days that are terrible and like little moments where stuff comes, comes up and things like that. And it's, it's, you know, not something that is just completely done and in the past, but it was just uh, a nice thing to, to have happen and to just see an overwhelming, show of, uh, of love for my dad during this time. Um, and I also uh, wanted to say thank you to anybody out there who, um, you know, has continued to reach out. Um, I've been posting some stuff about my dad online and anyone who also took the time to contribute to our, our GoFundMe. Um, my family appreciates it more, more than you know. And just, uh, yeah, I think that there'll be some stuff coming up to that. Like, um, I don't know if it's something that like I'll, I'll write about, but I'll certainly talk about at some point, just certain things about, movies and things tied to my dad and just stuff that I've been uh, thinking about and, and pondering on as I've been rewatching uh, certain things and just like have new perspectives based on just things I've experienced and what has happened uh, recently. So I'll, I'll talk more about that at another time, but uh, yeah. yeah. Is that GoFundMe still live right now? It is. It is. It's still live. So if um, we, we can include a link to that in the show notes, uh, if you yeah. want to do that again. So yeah, cause that's, that's still active out there. 
yeah, so we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. So if you want to help out, help Brad and his family and uh, donate to, uh, you know, all the stuff that's going on and uh, putting this memorial and everything, you know, it, it's a lot. I, you know, having gone through a death of a parent, like it, it is a lot. So, yeah, for um, sure. you know, any help is appreciated. Uh, you know, last week, I think, Brad, you were talking about uh, getting your getting vaccinated and how you just like happened to come across like a place that was going to be throwing out uh, the vaccine. And it, it, Ben, it seems like you, like right after that conversation, the same thing happened to you. Yeah, same exact scenario. Um, there was a there's a pharmacy in the Winn Dixie that's like five minutes from my house, and I just happened to call them uh, one day after work and was just curious about you know what their process was like in terms of like getting shipments of doses and and all that kind of stuff. And and they said like, hey, you know, uh, I know that the state of Florida is uh, right now. I think the state of Florida is only vaccinating people who are like 50 and older. Um, the rollout here has been questionable at best. Wow, uh, it, it's worse for you now than it is for me because on the 31st here in Indiana, they're finally rolling out to everyone 16 and older. Yeah, I, I've seen several states are uh, are like under those require or whatever, like are, are doing that uh, right now. I think Alaska was one of them. Uh, several states are, are doing that. And that seems like the way to go right now. Uh, we just get them out there. But um, anyway, Florida is still... Florida ing it up over here. So, uh, yeah, I just happened to call and, and they were like, you know, we, we just opened a vial. There's 10 shots or 10 doses in a vial and we have five doses left and we're going to close in 15 minutes and, you know, we don't have any appointments. So you grab your wife and come on down and grab, you know, get friends and, and just come. We're going to literally <laughs> throw these away if, if they don't go in somebody's arm. So, uh, we just went down there and got it done. I mean, it was, it was, it was kind of surreal. It was kind of weird to just like, because it happened so quickly. And like, you know, this is something I've been thinking about for months now and just like dreaming about like, oh man, I can't wait until this thing happens. <laughs> and then all of a sudden in like this whirlwind stretch of like, I was on the phone and then, you know, 10 minutes later I was getting the shot. It was like just really strange experience. So, um, yeah, obviously it's a, um, it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing. And, and I hope that Florida sort of opens things up, uh, much more drastically very soon but um yeah i just want yeah. to give that a little update and i know there's parts of florida that are doing some different things i know orange county where uh you know walt disney world and stuff is like it's 40 and a older so i like, you know there's different parts of different it's still here in california you need like to have a pre-existing a pre-existing condition uh, i have my appointment for tomorrow so hd that's going to leave you as the last remaining slash film you know uh, core member has not gotten their vaccine are, are 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 you experiencing the fomo that i am because like everybody's getting their vaccine i i by the way how weird is 2021 that like we're like all like you know <laughs> excited to get a vaccine for the record it's... i haven't i haven't gotten mine yet I'm oh getting, you haven't gotten yours oh okay. i'm getting it actually this weekend i'm i finally managed to get an appointment so ht is the only one Yes. Okay. Well, she will be the only one after you, Chris. Yes. Then I will rub it in and be like, Haha, "No, I'm kidding." <laughs> Just stay inside all the time. It's fine. But HD, are you feeling the FOMO? I am feeling the FOMO. I'm I'm insanely jealous of all of you, and I just really want to get that vaccine so I can, um, you know, be able to go out without worrying. I mean, I already I also have like other other issues about going out and worrying at this at this time too so uh yeah. it's just uh it's a very fraught time for me 
Did, did any one of you guys that are have gotten the vaccine or are getting the vaccine has anybody gotten the Johnson Johnson? Sounds like no. 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 Oh, no. Moderna man. Yeah, I'm getting the Moderna. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's, on Sunday. That's what I'm getting too. I, I've not heard from anybody that's gotten that one shot Johnson Johnson. It's just uh like the mythical. I think it's thing. rare. It's like the yeah. rare one, probably because it's. It's probably because it's the one everyone wants because it's one it's one one and done. You don't have to come back for the yeah. booster. So, like, it, it, I would totally get that if I could, but at the same time, it was the last one to get approved, and probably had the least testing. <laughs> but I, like, I'm, I'm wondering. Yeah, I, I guess people probably just don't care about that. Those, you know, one and done. Don't have to worry about going back for a second shot. So let's do that one. <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week? Well, I finished the Mike Nichols biography by Mark Harris real quick. I wanted to mention that I mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, what an outstanding book. What a great book. One of the best showbiz biographies I've ever read. But I talked about that more in depth a few weeks ago. But absolutely read Mark Harris's Mike Nichols biography. Uh, right now, I switched to uh, a book that Chris spoke about on this podcast a little while back. So I won't dwell on it. But it's The Butchering Art by Lindsay Fitzharris, which is a book about the first Victorian doctor in 1850s who said, what if we washed our hands in, in hospitals? And uh, which, is, which seems outrageous that that was even a thing people didn't think about in the 1800s. But this book is fascinating because uh, hospitals used to be the most terrifying, evil, disgusting places on earth. And then one guy said, what if we clean things? And people stopped dying. And I'm not done with it yet, but it's super interesting. And if you're like me and like really gnarly uh, history stories, uh, the butchering art is uh, a very entertaining read. It's a good uh, it's a good companion to the Nick. So Ben, you should read this next because you're watching the Nick. And if, yeah. if you want if you want more gruesome hospital stuff, this is this is the book for you. <laughs> that was my first thought as Jacob was talking about this. I was like, this sounds familiar from what I'm watching right now. Uh, I'm also uh, I bought it to do some research for uh, trekking through time and space. The podcast HT and I do on our own time about yeah. Doctor Who and Star Trek. Uh, you should definitely listen to Trekking Through Time and Space uh, if you like Doctor Who and or Star Trek. Uh, but I bought Leonard Nimoy's 1995 memoir, I Am Spock. I originally bought it not as a joke, but as a, oh, it's only four bucks on eBay. Uh, maybe there's some fun stuff in here. I, I kept in the bathroom and open random pages whenever I walk through there uh, and I started getting sucked into it because Leonard Nimoy is actually a really good writer and he's really funny and his stories of working on Star Trek are incredibly entertaining. Uh, if I Even I do wonder at times if he's embellishing them. Like he publishes a memo he claims to have written to Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, to explain how they were undermining Spock uh, by giving Captain Kirk all the good lines. And the memo is complete with him writing an entire Kirk-Spock scene um, like explain, like to, to explain here's how you're writing Kirk and why it's a mistake. I don't know if he's embellishing there or not, uh, but it's incredibly entertaining. And I'll probably end up reading the whole thing straight through at this point because it's just so full of little bits of goodness. And, I, and since then, I've gone on eBay and I've bought a lot of the other Trek Cruise, um, original <laughs> Trek Cruise memoirs and biographies, <laughs> so I can learn more. And so far, I'll say as much. Learn Nimoy is very kind and courteous to his co-stars. But from what I understand, uh, George Takei and James Doohan uh, are not, especially toward William Shatner. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to reading their stories about how much they hate William Shatner. Yeah, I've heard all those books are good. I've even heard Shatner's book uh, is good. And you know what I think it is, Jacob? I think these people have gone on these tours of like these, you know, Trek conventions. Well, it, it's the same thing as like 
you know, Bruce Campbell and he goes on these book tours reading his stories. And I think like the story, I, I think there is some truth to these stories, but I do think as you tell uh, retell a story over and over again, it does get better and better. And especially with them telling these stories in front of crowds. And now, you know, they're writing down, you know, the, the story after they it, it's it's gotten that, uh, you know, fight or flight of being in front of a crowd and getting reactions and stuff. I think that's what it is. Yeah, I've actually read uh, Shatner's uh, first book, Star Trek Memories. It has a sequel, Star Trek Movie Memories, which I have not read yet. And it's also incredibly entertaining. Uh, Shatner thinks very highly of himself, and uh, he's unaware of that. And it's super, no. it's super entertaining. It uh, doesn't surprise me at all. Oh <laughs> yeah, I'll, like I said, I, I, if I read enough of these, I may talk about these in depth on Trekking Through Time and Space because I really am enjoying some of the stories that uh, Nimoy is writing about. Also, his first memoir from the 70s, I Am Not Spock, the prequel to I Am Spock, is incredibly expensive. And if you happen to have a copy you don't want, said, shoot me a DM, shoot me an email, I will buy it from you if you're offering a reasonable price. Uh, but also, I'm listening to a podcast, and this is, I know we have a podcast section on this doc, but I always, I always put my podcast notes here. I'm curious, has anybody here listened to the podcast at Dead Eyes? Yeah. Oh. I think I've heard about this one. This is about the uh, the actor who... Yeah, this is yeah. about uh, Connor Ratliff. He's a comedian, improver, and uh, actor who he does okay. He, he looks at his IDP page. He, he works steadily, and he has a lot of you know, on-stage comedy work. Uh, but this podcast is about how, in the early 2000s, he was hired for a bit role in the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, in an episode to be directed by Tom Hanks. And then Tom Hanks fired him from the episode for having, quote, dead eyes. And he and the podcast is essentially, as he describes at one point, serial about a case that doesn't matter. As he tries to get to the bottom of why Tom Hanks fired him for having dead eyes, and it ends up being not just a quest to to, to learn the truth about why Tom Hanks fired him, uh, but he talks to like a lot of showbiz actors and a lot of comedians, a lot of, a lot of people from all across Hollywood about their experiences, about their disappointments, about when they were fired, about their anxieties. It ends up being this really amazing portrait into. The, what's like to work as an actor not to be a movie star but to be a guy or or a woman who is just actively trying to get the bills paid and landing gigs and how hard and humiliating it can be and they're really good guests uh ryan johnson is in a very memorable episode talking about um, some star wars stuff um bobby moynihan has some great stories about snl uh seth rogan pops up uh it ends up i'm on, I'm on episode 11 right now there's 20 episodes so far and it's such a great portrait of like working class hollywood and you know, the chances you have to take and the heartbreaks of it. And he still has not met Tom Hanks yet. He still has not got to the bottom of, of why Tom Hanks fired him, but he's getting there. And I really, really hope that Tom Hanks realizes <laughs> that this podcast is not anti-Tom Hanks. It is pro-learning the truth, but whether or not Connor Ratliff has dead eyes. This is a really good podcast. You should listen to it. I'm going to have to check this out. Uh, you know, all this talk of of William Shatner, it made me think of the movie Free Enterprise. Jacob and HTD, I wanted to hear, have either of you seen this movie? I, I tried. I, I, I think... Oh, it's, really? It's, it, I, I'm not a fan of it. I haven't it, seen it. Can you guys tell me what it is, actually? I don't think I've heard of this. Okay, it's it's directed by Robert Mayer Burnett, who was this guy that did DVD special features. He's now kind of like one of those YouTube pundits that you see on like the Schmodown and stuff like that. Uh, but this was made in 1999. It was... Uh, fresh off like swingers being hit and this is kind of like a copy of swingers but you know how swingers was like the guys were like these out of work actors trying to make it in hollywood instead of that it's starring a bunch of trekkies 
So it's Swingers meets Star Trek, which sounds really bad. William Shatner ends up appearing in it. Uh, Jake, I think, I don't know. I'm not saying it's a good movie. I'm not going to convince you that this is a good movie, but I, I do think, I do think you guys should spend an episode of your podcast <laughs> talking about this movie because it, it needs to be it needs to be seen and talked about I, I i don't is it good i i don't know i'm not i'm not saying that but i i think william shatner and especially your claim that you know william shatner thinks a lot of himself or, or full on display in this movie Look, we will one day cover free enterprise on trek through time and space but right now <laughs> right now we're trying to survive like we're ahead of recording for those of you who listen to both shows and right now, HD is trying to survive Star Trek season three, which uh, I wouldn't wish on some of my worst enemies. So yeah, we'll try for Enterprise that, later. Um, it was a lot. <laughs> for those of you at home uh, who know Star Trek, the Paradise Syndrome. Uh, nope. <laughs> okay, let's move on from that to Chris. Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, some people read for lighthearted distraction, and then some people like me read two volume biographies of Hitler. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, I, I had heard about this book. Um, there, there are two books by, uh, Volker Ulrich is the author's name. He's a German writer. And these books have been translated into English. And there are two books. One is called Hitler ascent and one is called Hitler downfall. And I had seen someone in my Twitter feed being like, I just finished the first volume of this and it was excellent. And I was, it occurred to me, like I had never actually read, anything about Hitler. You know, my knowledge of Hitler is based on movies and history channel specials and, you know, what I learned in, in school. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to read this book or technically books about Hitler. And it's, it's, this is a great book. I'm going to, I'm just going to call it a book for a Army, even though it's technically two books. It's a great book. Uh, but it's, it's, as you can imagine, very just depressing and distressing. And I would not recommend reading it if you're uh, in a, depressed state because it just made me more miserable than I usually am. Um, you know, I don't, I want to go too long in this, you know, what, what can I say? Hitler, bad guy. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I feel like a lot of times comparisons between Hitler and Donald Trump can be kind of overblown. And I don't want to be like, Donald Trump is as bad as Hitler. But when you read a book like this and you read about Hitler's life, it's, it's really hard to, to read this and not, think of Donald Trump's I'm sorry specifically of his political life because they're they were both just you know whiny baby men who somehow convinced millions of people that they were really smart tough guys and they were both just really just insecure losers basically who rose to power uh, almost like accidentally like both Hitler and Trump uh you know, you can see the, you know, the early signs, the seeds where everyone's like, this is going to be bad if this guy gets in power. And, you know, Hitler, there were so many people in Germany at the time who saw that, you know, Hitler was bad news, but they were like, well, he's got this populist movement behind him. Let's back him just so we can, you know, exploit that. And everyone was like, we're going to be able to control him. It'll be fine. And in, you know, a very short amount of time, he had, Hitler had like, you know, gotten rid of everyone who thought they could control him and rose to power and destroyed Germany and launched a world war and all that horrible stuff. And again, I'm not saying they're the same guy, but it's, it's very distressing when you read this and you're like, wow, this is 
too close for comfort for me. So, so. so Chris, are you trying to make the the claim that you're the first to make this claim that history repeats itself? Yeah, I know. No one has ever said that before, but I I would like to think I'm the first person who who has ever thought of that idea. So thank you, Peter, for pointing that out. <laughs> we will we will credit you forever for yes, for please being, put for put me down that. put yeah. me down in the history books for thinking of that. Um, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I also read Later, which is the latest from Stephen King. Um, this is part of the it's like one of his true crime books and it's very short, especially for Stephen King It's very short and it's fine. It's um, it's basically, it reads like Stephen King watched the sixth sense. It was like, I can do that because it's, it's literally about a kid who sees dead people. And uh, he adds a true crime element into it where um, the kid's mother has a girlfriend who is, a cop and she finds out that the kid can see dead people. And she's like, I'm going to exploit this kid to help me solve a crime. And it's fine. It's a very easy read. Um, uh, one thing I will say is it has a, like a direct tie in to it that I was not expecting. And I don't think it, it actually works. And, you know, Stephen King, he, he often does a thing where he's like, you know, referencing his other books. That's nothing new for him, but this is like a blatant, blatant tie-in to it i'm not saying like pennywise shows up but it's it's very very weird that like he just throws this in there and it's like it almost makes this like a sequel to it if if you want to think of it that way so Hmm. uh it's odd but yeah i I, you know i'm a Stephen king fan i liked reading it i finished it in a day because it's it's so breezy so if you're looking for a very quick forgettable entertaining read stephen king's later and if you're looking for something very depressing reads the two volume biography of Hitler. Yeah. Is is anybody adapting later for the big screen? That hasn't been announced yet, but I'm sure like any minute now, just because people are just studios are hungry for that Stephen King material. So I would not be surprised if this gets scooped up any yeah. any day now. Well Warner Brothers could buy it and then actually market it as a it uh, they could, yeah. Series uh spinoff or something. Yeah. Anyways, okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. On uh, Monday, we had this whole podcast talking about Zack Snyder's Justice League. The Snyder Cut has been released, and two people were not on that podcast. That includes Jacob and HT. You guys have both saw, seen this film. Do, do we do we call this a film? I guess it's a film. It's a director's cut. Uh, Jacob, I'm going to throw it to you first. What did you think? I'm not going to say too much because I'm, I'm still being harassed by Zack Snyder fans, as I have been for the past three years. Uh, because sorry, guys, you're the, the you're the ugliest, cruelest, most vicious fan base. Um, but the movie's good. Uh, it's a, an improvement over the theatrical in every possible way. Zack Snyder clearly has a vision. It's not a vision I particularly like for these characters, but it is a vision. I think the main problem with it is that it's a four hour long assembly cut that's been finished. If they had made this into a miniseries, as they originally announced in four episodes, if it would have been, it would have been able to justify how it's structured. But as a movie, it doesn't really work. It, it works as a bunch of events happening and, and more things happen, more things happen. There's no pace to it, no, no no flow to it, no structure to it. It's just a bunch of scenes, a bunch of really sh- well-shot scenes, a bunch of often very interesting scenes. Uh, the action is really good because that's what Zack Snyder does really, really well. Uh, but it's just... Movies should have shapes. They should be. They should have drives. They should be about something. And in its current form, it's such a big, sloggy mess that 
uh, it really is like binge watching four episodes of a TV show. And people have already yelled at me about how, well, you should just pause it when you're wanting to take a break. And yes, that's how TV works. Movies should be their own compact thing. So yeah, it's really interesting. I'm actually glad it exists at this point. I'm, uh, it, it is a much better movie. And I think there's an alternate world where Warner Brothers cut this down to two and a half hours and it was a movie people actually liked in theaters. Uh, but I just wish there was more discipline in its making. And that's all I'm going to say about this forever because I'm done talking about it. <laughs> HT, what did you think of the Snyder Fat? I feel like I can't add anything that hasn't already been said and that Jacob hasn't already said very eloquently because I agree with everything he said. Um, this is a movie that I enjoyed more than I thought I would. I did not really care for uh, the 2017 Justice League, but I also didn't hate it. I just thought it was incredibly forgettable and I already have. And I don't remember still a lot of what happened. Um, but the Snyder Justice League is, yes, it's it's definitely very much a Snyder movie, but and it has that vision, it has that spectacle um, that is really admirable. And I, I think the action sequences, especially the Amazon action sequence, is stunning like I was pretty wowed by that scene but then it keeps going <laughs> and it's just um it's a real real slog it's a very baggy movie that um uh, yeah it just feels like two hours of setup essentially before you get to the action which also just kind of happens and um it's yeah it's it's an interesting experiment for sure and I think I just agree with what everyone else has said it's an interesting experiment um it's I, I think it's, yeah, it's good that like it's finally come out and Snyder was able to fill his vision, but um, it just feels more like an experiment than an actual movie. Yeah. And if you want to hear us talk about this at further length, I think we did almost an hour and a half and that's on Monday. And that was a spoiler discussion on Zack Snyder's Justice League. Uh, we went through not beat by beat, but maybe character by character. And it talked about how ridiculous the ending of that movie is. Uh, so if you want to listen to that, go check out that episode. Um, let's talk about Nobody. Chris and Ben have both seen this. Uh, Chris, tell us about it. Yes, Nobody is the new movie from the writer of John Wick, and it stars Bob Odenkirk in his first uh, action lead role. And I was really excited for this. You know, I, I love the John Wick movies. I love Bob Odenkirk. I love the idea of Bob Odenkirk becoming an action hero. and. I got to say the movie really disappointed me. Um, I reviewed it on slash and I, I ultimately gave it a positive review verging on negative, but I, you know, it's, it, it felt very weak to me. It felt very much like it was like a rejected John Wick sequel that they just plugged Bob Odenkirk into. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Bob Odenkirk is great in this. He's a very convincing action hero and i love that he's trying this out and i love that he's trying to you know stretch himself and the action is filmed really well it's 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 clear and it's concise and it's exciting but the movie itself is just weirdly like limp and inert and i didn't feel like i i underst not understood but i didn't like care about anything that was going on here you know the, the john wick movie especially the first one I wouldn't say that they're like groundbreaking, but they felt fresh and exciting in ways that action movies hadn't felt in a while because they, you know, they were very stylish and they, they had this really interesting world building element to them. And they, you know, they had Keanu Reeves at the center of them and they're sort of trying that here. Like you can see hints of world building stuff in here, but none of it really works that well. And 
I don't know. It, it feels like there's a longer cut of this movie that's better. And I want to see that because like there, there are subplots that just go nowhere in here. And, you know, we don't learn anything about uh, Bob Odenkirk's wife who's played by Connie Nielsen. She's just like there. She's just like a generic wife character. And that feels like a huge waste of Connie Nielsen to me. And uh, Bob Odenkirk's character has like a brother who we never see. We just hear his voice. And then he just like shows up at the end. And it's like, well, who, who is this guy? Why should I care that he's here? And Christopher Lloyd is in it, and he plays Bob Odenkirk's father. And it's fun to see Christopher Lloyd, but again, it's like, who is this guy? Why should I give a shit about anything that's happening in this movie? And I don't know, this is like, it's just a really big disappointment. Because like I said, I was so much looking forward to this. And the trailers were a lot of fun. And it just it just really let me down. And I, I just felt like I want Bob Odenkirk to make another action movie that's better. Because he, he clearly can do action, and he deserves a a better movie to showcase it. But I also seem to be in the minority of this because everyone else's review I'm seeing was like, this is the most fun I've had in years. And I'm just like, what the fuck? What am I missing? So Ben, how do you feel? Am I crazy? Did you like it? Uh, Wow. Uh, Oh no, (laughs) no, no. Uh, I'm, I'm reacting in shock to your description of other people's reaction, which I have not seen uh, because I am very much in your camp on this. I, um, I agree with, I think, everything you said. It sounds like I liked it a little bit more. I would sort of give this, like, I don't know exactly what your rating was. Um, I give it a on, 6 out of 10. I was going to say, like, a gentleman's 6. That seems that seems <laughs> about right to me. Um, so, you know, there are some fun moments. There are some fun, especially action moments. Um, and and it's always, you know, it's it's uh, inherently interesting to see somebody, like, who's had the, a career as, um, as uh, just fascinating and sort of wide-spanning as Bob Odenkirk in the center of a movie like this. And I think he does a good job with what he's given, but the rest of the movie around him is, um, it really just feels like a, like a, like you said, like sort of a, like a rejected John Wick movie. Like, I, I was desperate for, I think watching this movie made me realize just how, important the world building aspects of the John Wick movies are to the the success of that franchise because otherwise if you strip that away it's just an exploitation movie that you've seen a hundred times and that's kind of what this film feels like um there's even there's a lot of like very similar stuff in nobody to the John Wick movies like uh Odenkirk's character you know runs afoul of the Russian mob and like all of that feels so um sort of larger than life in a way that that fits perfectly in a John Wick movie where you have the continental and like these you know all these mysterious sort of like uh otherworldly aspects that sort of fit into this heightened stylized universe and nobody makes the decision to kind of have it have everything take place in like a more grounded realistic universe and i feel like that's just a big mistake because it feels it makes everything feel um, like the tone is just clashing all over the place. Like, are we supposed to be taking this seriously? Are we not? At certain points, it feels like you're really supposed to be, um, you know, viewing this as like a, a very, very serious, gritty kind of thing. And then like some ridiculous, truly ridiculous, like over the top action stuff will happen. And then it's like, well, what kind of world is this really? And so I, I just, I sort of walked away from it like confused. Um, I was happy that, that Bob Odenkirk had the opportunity to do this and it looks like he had some fun making it. And, and like you said, Christopher Lloyd looked like he was just having a blast. Um, so that, that was nice. Uh, but yeah, overall, I, I think, yeah, a, a six out of 10 feels about right. 
Ouch. Okay, well, this Friday on Disney Plus comes a new live-action TV series. It is the Mighty Ducks Game Changers. This is a sequel to the 1992 film of the same name without Game Changers. It was uh, written by Stephen Brill, and he returns with this this show. It's, it's coming out this Friday. I saw the first episode. I know Brad saw the first three episodes. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen the trailer for this, it, it's actually interesting. It's kind of like a Cobra Kai kind of take on this property. Uh, it Lauren Graham plays the mother of uh, this kid, who uh, and now the Mighty Ducks junior hockey team is turned into like this very selective um, powerhouse hockey team that like, you know, if you're in this team, then you're going to like go far. You're going to get into a good college and stuff like that. And uh, her 12 year old boy, uh, Evan, uh, gets kicked out of this hockey team for not being good. And, uh, you know, the mom uh, wants to she helps form a new hockey team. Of a team of underdogs, much like the original Mighty Ducks, uh, and uh, finds the original coach of the Ducks, Gordon Bombay, played by the, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Emilio Estevez. Um, I really enjoyed this first episode uh, more than I thought I was going to. I, I, I'm curious to see where it goes because I know the first episode is written by Brill, who I'm not a huge fan of. Um, and the, the, the subsequent, uh, I think, six episodes or five episodes are written by uh, Josh Goldsmith and Caddy Yuspa. And they they are a screenwriting team that they've worked on The King of Queens. And they've done uh, uh, they wrote 13 Going on 30 and What Woman Wants. So I'm curious to see where this goes. It, it, it seems like a, a fun series. Brad, you've seen more of this than me. So what did you think? Uh, I liked it for the most part. Um, I'm not quite like super raving about it or like absolutely in love with it yet, but I think that um, there's enough good stuff here that it has the potential to really uh, grow into something that's in the true spirit of the Mighty Ducks and really fun and kind of follows that same, um, you know, Cobra Kai formula that kind of turns the franchise on its head a little bit because, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting approach to turn the mighty ducks into this franchise where they're they've essentially become the villains you know um they become like the wolves or, or iceland and they're the team that now this new scrappy young you know team of misfits has to take on um but i do think that the series has some work to do to match up to uh you know what i see as the quality of those original movies because um while those movies do do have like some some silly childish comedy because you know they're they're family sports movies and that kind of thing um, one thing that they do really well is great hockey sequences and the team has this incredible camaraderie and chemistry that really makes them feel like this tight knit group that you want to root for. Um, and while I think all of the kids in this show are really good, um, especially uh, Maxwell Simpkins plays um, Nick in this series. This kid, the kid is a scene stealer. He's um, the, he's this uh, kind of portly little kid who is like a podcaster for the community hockey scene and then he joins this team and he's he has incredible comedic timing and he's just so funny in the in this series and i love him and and all of the uh the other kids who play this team you know are, are good in their own way too but the only real chemistry i feel is between brady um noon who is from good boys uh between his character and nick the character i just talked about they have a really um good fun friendship and i don't think the rest of the team is quite there yet and that's something that might come with time because the, in the first three episodes um, they're really dragging out the Mighty Ducks formula as far as getting this team together, 
um, learning the basics of becoming a team. And a lot of them don't even really know how to actually play hockey, which is something else that was a little bit frustrating to me because even though the original Mighty Ducks movies had players with certain quirks and things they weren't so good at, they were all at least pretty good at skating and knew how to play the sport. Um, yeah, to give people a, a good idea, one of the players is just good at like video game hockey. Yeah, and then like, and the, that was actually one. There's one particular gag that I was like, no, this is too stupid to actually be believable because he's he's the Goldberg proxy. He's a he's a big beefy kid. He's supposed to be like their wall in the net. And during their first game, he's just standing in the net and he's repeating the PlayStation button combination for the goalie to block a shot on, on in video games. And it's like, I'm sorry. No kid is really going to do that. And so, like, some of the comedy is just a little too Disney Channel. But then at the same time, the the tone and, like, the vibe of the series is a little – is getting close to being as edgy or as edgy as a Disney sports movie could be back in the 90s. Because I was surprised to hear a couple, you know, slight swears here and there. Like, one, you know, one of the, one, one of the kids uh, – actually, the lead character, Evan, he says – um, you know, it's not, it's like, sure, like, hockey can be fun, but it's not fun when you're getting your ass kicked all the time. And so there's like little things like that, that make this a little, little bit more edgy, you know, of a, of a family series. But um, overall, I, I, I like the, the show, but I want it to grow into itself. And I, I, while it has the spirit of the Mighty Ducks, it has some work to do to really tap into what made those original movies great. Um, and that includes on like the filmmaking side of things, because if there's one thing that I was really frustrated by is, the hockey sequences here were not shot in a very compelling way, and they're all. It's also not helped by the fact that the score from John Debney in this series sounds like a cheap synthesized electronic knockoff of the score uh, from the original movies. Because they reuse the Mighty Ducks suite in this series, which feels weird because we're not following the Mighty Ducks anymore, and they're the bad guys. Um, but the theme is so good. I love the Mighty Ducks theme, and it just feels weak in this series. It feels cheap, and so. I hope that there's room for improvement. I'm interested to see where the series goes. I think Disney knows that they needed to kind of boost the nostalgia factor a little bit, which is why they revealed that some of the other Mighty Ducks players are coming in a later episode. You don't see any of them in these first three episodes. But uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that this turns into something that is on the same level as like as Cobra Kai, because I think that there's a lot of potential here. Yeah, I will say with Cobra Kai, like you were kind of invested in like the main two kids in the beginning and you did kind of start to fall in love with more of them as the show went on. So I'm hoping that does happen here. It, this was one of the first TV shows that began production during the pandemic. Like I started shooting, I think, in like summer 2020. So there's also that weirdness of probably, you know, <laughs> being on set when like at the height of things. <laughs> and, and how 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 you're dealing with that and how having to shoot like this these hockey sequences and and all that uh what did you think of Emilio Estevez he's the most fascinating part of the show yeah. to me I think because even though they're treading similar territory because when we when the Mighty Ducks started Emilio Estevez's character had this history with hockey he hated it he didn't like kids and we're back to square one with that but I'm intrigued to see how the background of his fallout with hockey unfolds because the third episode has him explain something that happened in his career um after the events of the mighty ducks movies and i i was hoping that it would be something that was a little more tied to the legacy of the movies and that they were going to create some kind of 
um, tension between him and maybe Charlie Conway, Joshua Jackson's character, who is, I believe, supposed to come back at some point, um, even though he wasn't in any of the images with uh, any of the other Mighty Ducks who come back to, to help Gordon out, you know, help the, help this new team. But I I hope that there's a little more to the story than, than what was un, un revealed in season three, because that's something that they also, or episode three, rather, uh, because that's something they also are... So slowly unfurling and dra- dragging out because they know they have to fill you know this whole season of tv yeah i think Emilio was the biggest surprise for me i i like lauren graham she's been great in like parenthood and i didn't see gilmore girls but i've heard a lot of great things in gilmore girls i liked her in parenthood um i'm excited to watch more of this but uh yeah like it's not like something that bowled me over in the first episode so that'll be on disney plus this friday uh, Jacob, you watched this film called Sasquatch. I, I I know right after you saw it, you you ran into our slack, our virtual Slack, and was telling us about it. You were you were excited to tell us about this movie. Why don't you tell everybody about Sasquatch? Uh, it's not a movie; it's a uh, three part, or, or, uh, or, yeah, yeah, three part Hulu true crime series. And I've seen the first episode from South by Southwest. I've I've been sent screeners for the rest of it. I'm, I'll be interviewing the director, so there'll be more Sasquatch coverage on SlashFilm.com. This is a fascinating true crime doc, and it's really unique. The, the basic gist is that it follows a investigative reporter who was working on uh, on a hidden pot farm in 1993 in the Redwood Forest in Northern California when, in the middle of the night, a fellow pot farmer bursts in, terrified, because he's found other pot farmers brutally mauled, torn limb from limb, and he says, Bigfoot did it. So, decades later, the true crime r- reporter with cameras following him, says, I'm going to find the truth. I'm going to find out who these dead men were, if they were dead men, and did Bigfoot play a role in this? Ends up being this wild blend of true crime investigation and like and Bigfoot hunting. And along the way, you learn the history of, of Northern California pot farming, which I found fascinating. <laughs> and it, and the first episode ends with a major cliffhanger, and it has a real propulsive sense to it. It really feels like a, a actual thriller. Because you're watching an investigation happen in front of the camera, as opposed to, you know, looking back on a completed investigation. Uh, the first episode, I thought, was an absolute blast. Incredibly fascinating. Uh, it was, as far as true crime docs go, it it feels really fresh and familiar and feels very cinematic. I'm assuming Chris has seen more. I'm assuming they sent you all three screeners, right, Chris? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I watched the whole thing over the weekend. Does it live up to the first step for, for you? Yeah, I really like this. I really like this approach because... It blends two of my favorite things, you know, monster stuff and true crime. I, I really thought it was a, a fascinating, uh, you know, because there's so much true crime stuff right now. It's becoming bigger than it ever was. And there's so many multi-part true crime docuseries out there. And I really like this one sort of found a unique sort of angle to make itself stand out among the rest. So I, I really, really enjoyed this. I And a lot of times I come away from these true crime docuseries being like, man, that was like too many episodes it could have been shortened and i actually wanted more with this one so i I feel like that's like a a sure sign that they're doing something right here because it wasn't like you know uh, uh, the most recent example i can hold up is like mcmillions which i really liked about the mcdonald's monopoly scandal but it was like 10 episodes long and it really could have been like two and uh this is like the reverse of that like i wanted more so uh yeah i I really dug it it's it's really cool and i really like how it does not wave away the Bigfoot stuff. It does not like treat it as a joke. And I'm, I'm a Bigfoot skeptic. I find it fascinating, but I'm also, I'm also, I could be convinced Bigfoot exists. So I like that the, the, that the show 
puts Bigfoot into the pile of evidence and treats it as that, as a piece of evidence, at least in the first episode. And I love how it, it's never goofy about Bigfoot. It just says, I heard this happened. There's weird stuff up there. Who knows? And it it never like treats it subject as a joke. And that really ends up being really effective. Uh, when can people see this and where? It will be on Hulu, and I will find out the release date for you after I'm looking up. Um. <laughs> okay, well, while you do that, I will talk about what I've been watching on Netflix. There's this documentary called The Last Blockbuster. And, uh, you know, this documentary is the movie you think it's going to be, and but I think it's worth watching. Uh, this is a new documentary. It's about the last remaining blockbuster video. Uh, it's located in this little town of Bend, Oregon. Um, but it's not just about this last blockbuster. It's about uh, the legacy, the nostalgia, the the rise and fall of this company that like meant a lot to a lot of us film geeks growing up and renting videos. And, you know, it, it, it's accompanied with, you know, sit down interviews with Kevin Smith, Brian Posehn, Doug Benson, Paul Shear, Sam Levine, Jamie Kennedy. A lot of people, some of those people that worked at Blockbuster or were part of Blockbuster campaigns or, you know, Jamie Kennedy worked at Blockbuster in the Scream movies. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman is a big Blockbuster hater and he's the filmmaker behind uh, Toxic Avenger. He's part of this as well. Uh, but it, it it's also at the heart of this about this uh, woman named Sandy Harding, who is the 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 manager of this store, this last remaining store. And, you know, I, I over the years, I've heard a lot about uh, the, the, these, you know, these last remaining franchise blockbusters that were still in, a, in existence. And I know there were two in Alaska that recently went out of business. This now is the, the final uh, blockbuster. And I, I really didn't understand, like, how how that happened, like how, I, you know, I understand how Blockbuster fell, but I, I, I don't understand how this store s- is still there. And it's interesting hearing her story and, uh, you know, the fight to keep it alive, uh, especially during the pandemic and uh, with the big corporation that owns Blockbuster, maybe not wanting the store open. And uh, there's it, it, it's it's interesting, too, because this this whole store is operated like it was in the you know early 2000s so this woman is having to like re like buy on ebay like old pos machines because they can't update like all the stuff is like in the old technology so they're like constantly like trying to put together a frankenstein piece of the pos system to keep it going i don't know and it I don't know. It, it, it's it's worth seeing. I don't think it's uh it's it's nothing like groundbreaking. It's not you're not going to walk away from it and be like, oh my god, that's like life changing or you know I learned a lot. Uh, but I think as anybody out there that's listening to a podcast like this, you you must be a film geek and you probably grew up going to Blockbuster. I would I would highly recommend checking out the last Blockbuster on Netflix. And uh, Jacob, where can people find Sasquatch? Sasquatch will stream on Hulu on four twenty. So light it up. <laughs> Uh, coincidence? I think not. Uh, Jacob, what else have you been watching? Uh, a few South by Southwest things I want to highlight. I watched the first episode of Made for Love, the new HBO Max science fiction comedy horror series starring Kristen Milioti in her uh, second streaming uh, project about a science a science fiction project about, about a woman lost in a terrifying desert <laughs> after Palm Springs. But Made for Love is very good. It's essentially a it feels like a companion piece to Black Mirror, but uh, funnier than Black Mirror <laughs> typically is. 
It's about a woman who is the long-term partner of a tech billionaire who essentially holds her hostage in this near future dystopian uh, complex in the desert. And he reveals he plans to use her as a guinea pig for his new technology, which will put uh, I will put a chip in her head so she so that her and him will share a single consciousness and and all, at all times being each other's brains. So she bolts, and the series, uh, which will be uh, eight episodes adapting uh, a, the book of the same name, is about her fleeing her abusive trash billionaire or cajillionaire uh, <laughs> uh, partner and uh, you know trying to escape. And the first episode is really funny. It is really sharp. It moves so fast. And uh, director Stephanie Lang uh, has a real eye to both comedy and action. The way she shoots this show is... I'm just so tired of comedy shows, even like, you know, glossy, expensive ones. I, I just put a camera on the actors and let them say the lines. Hopefully the lines are funny enough. But there's so many visual touches, the way how she shoots a comedy, the way people enter the frame, the way they leave the frame, the way the frame lingers. Uh it's inc- probably one of the best directed comedy shows I've seen in some time. And it's violent and it's wild and science fiction is really strong. And Chris Milioti is so funny and so manic and incredible in the lead role. Uh, the trailers, there's two trailers now. If you should watch those uh, and then go watch the rest of the show and it hits HBO Max next month because I think Made for Love is going to be a show that I'm going to watch every week. Very cool. What else have you been watching? Uh I also watched another new show that premiered at South by Southwest. This is Them, the new, uh, as they call it, terror anthology show coming to Amazon, where each season will be a uh, a season about you know terror in America in some way. And Them is about a black family that moves to a white neighborhood in Los Angeles in the fifties. Uh, it's, it's sort of an unsaid joke. The neighborhood is Compton before it, you know, uh, back in the day when it was like this super white suburb, and it's about how they deal with day to day racism. And then go home to an extremely haunted house. And it's a blend of Jordan Peele-esque, you know, social horror satire. And, um, you know, James Wan haunted house jump scares. But what really stood out to me is... I've, there's been a lot of horror movies about black characters that, try, that, you know, that blend the social commentary with the, you know, haunted house hijinks or the genre stuff. But Them is the first time where the filmmaking so vividly puts you in the shoes of its characters as they encounter, you know, discrimination and racism and humiliating vileness from every walk of their life. And, you know, from the girls at school to the husband at at work, to the wife in the neighborhood. And they arrive at the start of the show already, you know, on edge for a lot of reasons. And the show really puts you in their shoes. And as a, as a white man, I found these scenes to be more disconcerting than most depictions of cinematic racism that I've seen because the filmmaking and the sound design and the way things are framed really squarely puts you in the scenes in a way that had my, had me deeply upset. And so them is, is a really functionally good haunted house show. That's also a truly terrifying portrait of, of racism. Uh, Chris, I'm sending you screeners for this. Have you got them yet? They have not. And I'm very angry. Listen to me. Uh, who's the guy who runs Amazon? I forget. Jeff Bezos. Listen, Jeff Bezos, send me my screeners. 
I yeah. really want to see this because it looks amazing. Yeah, people don't know this, but Jeff Bezos is one of the subscribers of Slash Home Daily. So. I know, yeah, he listens every day while he's swimming in his vault of gold like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> well, them is really, really good. And that hits uh, Amazon next month. I'm not sure what their rollout plan for it is, but I will say I've seen the first two episodes and they were deeply upsetting and I can't wait <laughs> to watch more. Uh, also... If you if if you have your horror, you know your modern horror bingo card. Javier Botet, the Spanish actor who plays monsters and everything, is in this playing yet another monster. Uh, I also watched uh, first episode of Confronting a Serial Killer, which is a new true crime docu series from Joe Berlinger. You know the uh, always making true crime docs to Joe Berlinger, and Confronting a Serial Killer has has almost no style to it. It's very old fashioned. You know, talking heads, um, people sharing their stories about. A serial killer uh, who claims he's killed up to 90 women uh, over 30 years. And he's been locked away. And the f- documentary follows a writer as she in- interrogates him, investigates him, and-, and learns more. And I found it deeply unpleasant to watch, which maybe is how it should be. I mean, we have true crime shows uh, like Sasquatch that are an absolute blast to watch. Then you have Funny Serial Killer, which kind of refuses to revel in it, refuses to romanticize anything about it. And the result is... Uh, something that's really memorable and really upsetting, but I will say that when they started playing the second episode after the first during the online screening, I had to tap out. Not because it's bad, but because the first episode was so overwhelming in its bleakness and so focused on the victims and how their lives were torn apart as opposed to, you know, getting having fun with serial killers that I had to just say, nope, I can't do more than one right now. But it's, this is coming to stars. So if you have stars, look for Confronting a Serial Killer if you have a real bad time <laughs> for for an hour or several. Um, I also watched two more true crime shows on Netflix, because why not? Uh, Night Stalker and Murder Among the Mormons, both of which have been talked about on the show, so I won't dwell. I think they're both very good. Uh, they both are, are short, three episodes and four episodes. And that is the right way to do this. You know, as Chris said earlier, there's no reason for your true crime show to be eight episodes long unless it really calls for it. I think both these get the job done in very different ways, but they're they're both good shows. And finally, uh, I watched Good Burger, and I can't remember. I hit play on Good Burger on Netflix, and it said resume. So presumably at some point I watched Good Burger recently, and I think I may have been drunk. And I was drunk again when I tried to watch it again. So I think Good Burger is a movie I watch when I'm drunk. Uh, I don't know if Good Burger is good. This is the big screen adaptation of the... Uh, all that sketch from the Nickelodeon, you know, Saturday Night Live for Kids show with uh, Keenan Thompson and Kel Mitchell. And Good Burger has a strong following now. And as a kid, I love this. And I can't tell if it's good or not, but man, I'm glad it exists. It is so bizarre. And it has no reason to be as strange as it is. This truly, someone on Twitter described it as the best 80s movie of the 90s, which I think is a very accurate depiction of Good Burger. Brad, help me out. Is Good Burger actually good? Yeah, no, I was literally just about to say, it's it's one of those things where you expect it to be bad and not hold up, but it really does have this vibe of this zany 1980s comedy where, like, just, like, crazy things happen. You know, it's it's a bit over the top. I, I love that it has Sinbad and Shaquille O'Neal in it. Um, it, it really is fun, and, and, and Kel Mitchell and Keenan Thompson are especially great, not just as a duo, but just as these characters. There are so many lines and interactions they have with each other that still make me laugh to this day. Um, and like, I, I can easily recognize like when there are movies from my childhood that just aren't that good anymore, like, you know, Space Jam and, and, uh, movies like that kind, but Good Burger, I think like holds up even, even as an adult. And I, I still have fun watching it. 
Oh, there we go. Good Burger. It's on Netflix. <laughs> Send us emails if it's good or not. Okay, uh, let's move on to Chris. Chris, what have you been watching? What have I been watching, Peter? Let me look at the document because I was Well, because because you watched the Snyder Cut, you That's wanted right. to revisit Aquaman. <laughs> That's true. That is exactly what happened because I, uh, the Snyder Cut is out there. I watched it, and Aquaman in the Snyder Cut is kind of just like this miserable, grumpy jerk, and it had me longing for the Aquaman movie where Aquaman is, you know, this goofy dope who's who's you know fun and charming and see bro uh, exactly that's what i wanted and man i've said this before it's apparently a controversial statement and i don't give a shit aquaman is hands down the best dceu movie and at the same time that's not like saying a lot because a lot of those movies suck but this is is my favorite film in that that franchise everyone want to call it shared universe whatever you want to call it it's just so much fun it's so inventive it's so colorful, like watching this after just the, the Snyder cut, which is so like gray and drab and, and muted in colors is like night and day. It's there's just so much like bright, colorful inventiveness. You know, it's the only movie where Nicole Kidman dresses up like a sea monster and eats a goldfish and throws a trident around. I don't know how you can not like that. I don't know. And, you know, some people think this movie's too silly. I don't. I, I, I feel like w- what I love about this movie is James Wan, the director, knows how inherently silly Aquaman is as a character. And rather than trying to shy away from that, which is what I think Zack Snyder does, where he's like, well, I'll show you. Aquaman isn't silly. He's this cool, tough guy. James Wan is like, no, we're going to embrace how silly this is and have fun with it. And... Uh, I don't know. Everything in this movie works for me. I I, I love it. And uh, I I want more Aquaman movie. Aquaman. I want more of it. So I'm looking forward to the sequel whenever we get around to watching that. Wait, I only have one question for you, Chris. Like you said, this is the best DCEU movie, but you you just had Zack Snyder's Justice League. I know. Believe it or not, this is better than that movie. I know it's going to surprise some people out there, but it's true. This is this is the better film. Um, (laughs) Chris must be fucking with us all. So I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Chris, what 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 else did you say? So Criterion has a new uh, Wong Kar Wai uh, box set and I got it. And I'm I'm ashamed to admit that this uh, he this is a blind spot for me, this filmmaker. I've seen. but I've seen 2039, which is one of his films, but I have not seen any of the others. And I, I'm embarrassed to say that because, you know, it's so acclaimed. He's so acclaimed. And these films are often heralded as, you know, masterpieces. So I'm glad I finally had this box set. And I, I, I dug into it. I started with In the Mood for Love because that's the one that and Chuck Hank Express are the ones that everyone ever always talks about. So I started with In the Mood for Love. And man oh man this movie is so fucking good oh my god i i'm so glad i finally watched this it's just just a gorgeous just visually and emotionally uh, breathtaking film um it's about these uh their neighbors in the 60s this man this woman they they move into these apartments that are next to each other and they learn that their spouses are having an affair with each other and that draws them together. And at the same time, they're like, you know, well, we, we're not going to be like them. We're not going to have an affair, but they clearly are just like lusting and longing for each other. And the whole movie is just about these, you know, these characters really drawn to each other and 
fighting that urge and it's just so beautiful and swooning and oh my god when it ended when it, it's one of those movies that when it ends you're like god damn i love movies like it reminds you it reminds you why you love movies so much and i, I can't wait to dig into the rest of this box set and, and watch the rest of them i just want to say i also got this box set it was my birthday treat to myself i bought it for all like what was it $200 or something? And I was like, I'm going to treat myself. And I'm so happy I have it. It's a beautiful box set. In the Mood for Love is probably one of my favorite movies. I just adore that movie. And I don't think, I feel like, is there any other director who does yearning as well as, as Wong Kar Wai? I can't, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, maybe Zack Snyder. <laughs> but, no, but yeah, it's, it's this box set. I mean, like I said, I've only watched one movie in the box set, but that alone was like, this is worth having. And uh, I can't wait to, to watch the rest. It's so fucking good. I, I need that feeling again. Like, I feel like I haven't had that feeling in the last year. I'm telling you, this will do it for you. Cause like, I, you know, I watch so many movies. It's my job and I love movies and some movies you watch and you're like, that was fine. And then some movies like in the mood for love you watch and you're just like, holy shit, this is what movies can be. It almost makes you angry because it's like, God damn, there are so many filmmakers who suck. <laughs> like, why aren't, why aren't they as good as, as this? So oh, I love it. Um, and then finally, I watched uh, Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy, which is a CNN show where Stanley Tucci goes all over Italy eating food. And it's a it's a very charming show. Uh, it'll make you hungry. It'll make you want to go to Italy. It'll make you thirst for Stanley Tucci because he's like really handsome and he dresses really well so it's like wow stanley tucci is a very good looking man and it's fun to watch him walk all over italy and eat pasta so this is on cnn uh i think it's like still airing so there there might be more episodes i just started watching it and i I, my wife and i have been just really enjoying it because my wife and i when we we watch tv we watch two things we watch either murder shows or shows about food so uh this is this is perfect for us just stanley tucci eating some pasta wait i'm assuming this was shot before the pandemic um it's some episodes are shot before the pandemic and then some are shot after so it's it actually has like disclaimers at the front where it's like this episode was shot before the pandemic and then another will be like this was shot after so some episodes he'll be wearing a mask and some episodes he won't interesting brad what else have you been watching uh after i talked about starting the show last week i uh did what i said i would do and i finished the rest of ted lasso uh man, i at first i felt dumb and bad that i didn't watch this show earlier because everyone kept saying how good it was but honestly this is exactly the kind of show that i needed right now it is a big warm blanket in front of a cozy fire on a super cold night uh the writing on this show is impeccable jason sudeikis is amazing on the series everyone in the show is fantastic um this it's funny that we're also talking about mighty ducks today because this feels like the adult soccer version of the mighty ducks um which is i think another reason why i love it so much it one of the things that i love so much about this show is that even the characters who you have a somewhat of a disdain for or who are kind of jerks or who make you know bad decisions or are, are kind of what you would call the villains they're not just full-on villains they're three-dimensional complex characters that even you you end up rooting for them too and like you're with every character every step of the way and the relationships between each and every one of them are just so magnificent and and wonderful i can't say enough positive things about this show um i'm, I'm so excited for the second season whenever that comes around um if you're like me 
and you have put off Ted Lasso for so long, do not do it anymore. It is it is worth paying for a month of Apple TV Plus just to watch Ted Lasso. You will not regret it. Okay. HT, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched this uh, Indian animated film that uh, ha- is another hidden gem on Netflix that kind of got uh, dropped very quietly on the streaming service and is uh, naturally buried in the movie the Netflix's algorithm like many of its international films um, but this movie is called Bombay Rose it's an Indian animated film directed by uh, I'm going to mispronounce her name I'm sorry Gitanjali Rao in her debut feature it debuted at the 2019 Venice Film Festival and got a lot of raves there um, and then Netflix picked it up and now it's buried so Check it out if you can, but uh, it's this hand-painted animated film that feels and looks like an impressionist painting come to life. It's really, really gorgeous, and it's set in the city of Bombay where a, a young flower seller named Kamala is um, has, has to work as the breadwinner for her younger sister and her infirm grandfather, and one day meets and falls in love with uh, an orphan refugee who also uh, works in the city and kind of hawks bouquets on the street um and it their romance plays out uh it's like this sort of star-crossed romance that is this big homage to classic bollywood cinema um and the animation kind of morphs and flows around them it changes into the various fantasies that they uh imagine uh kamala imagines like herself in this medieval sort of um Indian folktale type of fantasy world where she is like a princess who uh, must be like meets her hero and has to overcome all sorts of mythological creatures while uh, her um, her love interest imagines himself as like this Bollywood swaggering hero and uh, it's and there's also another subplot where this uh, former Bollywood actress who her the flower seller's younger sister befriends uh, is sort of stuck in her nostalgia for for the um, sort of post-colonial times and the entire film becomes black and white whenever she crapes through memory lane and it's this big big nostalgic wistful film that is just gorgeous to watch uh, and feels very much like a love letter to Bollywood and all of those high melodrama high stakes of of that of that kind of move of those kind of movies and um, it's yeah it's it's beautiful to watch and uh, I highly recommend it if uh, you do have an interest in animation at all but also just in a really good really uh, unique type of international animated film that will is sadly just completely buried by Netflix I had to search this I, I thought that maybe because it's like a Netflix original so to speak it would be on the homepage. but I searched it and it was like the third option and I was very upset by that anyways Netflix do better by your algorithm everyone watch Bombay Rose what uh, else have you been watching? The, uh, finally, I I finally caught up with The Crown um, in my, I think, like, six-month journey watching it. I, wa- I started watching um, season one, I think, back in the fall uh, after everyone had been talking about The Crown season four. And I was like, oh, I really want to see the Diana season. I should catch up and watch the entire thing. And I've just been taking it really slowly. I've been watching it with my roommate, and we've just been watching, like, a couple an episode every now and then during the week and uh, really enjoying it really just savoring the excellent character drama and writing that is the crown and um i feel like i've talked about it a little bit but um it's yeah i 
and I'm sure everyone else has talked about it as much too. It's great character dra- drama. It's amazing writing. Just some of the episodes are some like the best TV, like prestige drama TV I've seen in a while. And um, it is really fascinating, especially like going through the entire series, just seeing how all of the characters that you grow to sympathize with and empathize with at the beginning uh, just turn into outright monsters in season four. And it's it's something that's kind of there from the beginning too because the the facets like the character traits that they that they are that are so terrible in them in season four were there as almost like sympathetic traits like charles for example his insecurity his poor little rich boy like routine becomes this huge just like monstrous thing that um completely it makes him a really really horrible person just terrible also (laughs) the queen mother uh, is a monster (laughs) just a lot of terrible people in that show but again it's great it's great writing and that you 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 learn to like these people so much and then the monarchy and everything just twists them into these to the monsters and the villains of these of the series so finally finished the crown now i can wait for season five like the rest of you guys so so are you trying to say that money power and fame turns people into bad people like like, it's like chris you've coined another phrase i have it seems like i have i mean that too but specifically the monarchy and that (laughs) strict adherence to tradition uh that is just squeezes the humanity out of these people in a way that's just like you see it happening and they choose for it to happen because there's no other there's no other life they've led and it's just very sad to see um but they're they're all monsters now (laughs) (laughs) ben what have you been watching speaking of monsters uh i watched godzilla versus kong um which is coming out very soon on hbo max and in theaters i think next week uh, march 31st is when it it hits that streaming service uh the social embargo has lifted but the review embargo has not so i won't go too long on this i'll basically just reiterate what i tweeted about it which was the human story in this movie is uh laughable and terrible and um very very bad but i really enjoyed the giant monster fighting and i suspect that most people when you sit down to watch a movie called godzilla versus kong that's the only thing that you're really going to care about so i I feel like the movie definitely delivers on that front uh in terms of the scale and the spectacle and and all that kind of stuff and adam wingard who directs this um actually gives the thing some color and some some I, I like the score a lot so there, there are some uh creative artistic choices here that um elevate this above some of the other um uh, what do they call the monster verse movies uh thus far um i think i would put this eh, i don't know maybe neck and neck with uh, kong skull island which that movie has like a lot of uh style to it that i appreciated even though Again, the, the human stuff in all of these MonsterVerse movies is very uh, <laughs> underwhelming. Um, but I, I loved the uh, the style, the, especially there's the scene in the trailers and stuff uh, for Godzilla vs. Kong that um, showcases this giant fight in, I think it's Hong Kong, and there's neon everywhere, and it makes no practical sense, but uh, it looks very cool. And there's this great score playing underneath it, and um, it's like this is what you sign up for when you watch one of these movies. So um, it definitely delivers on that sort of visceral uh, uh, aspect. So Godzilla versus Kong, I'm sure we're going to be talking about more, you know, talking about it more uh, in, in the coming weeks. So yeah, when, when does it hit? Uh... March 31st uh, in the U S on HBO max and in theaters. I think actually it's, it's in theaters uh, internationally right now. 
Okay. And what else have you been watching? Uh, I also watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was directed by Stanley Kramer. It was, uh, came out in 1967. I'd never seen this before. Um, it stars uh, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn as the parents of uh, this, uh, I guess, young, young-ish, 20-ish uh, year old white woman who comes home and she has a black fiance and it's like this, um, you know, shocking, uh, sequence of events. And, uh, Sydney Poitier plays the, the fiance and, uh, Catherine, uh, Houghton, I think is how you pronounce her, her name. Um, I've never seen that actress before. She plays the, the female lead and she is actually, uh, Catherine Hepburn's niece in real life, which I thought was a cool little connection because, uh, Catherine Hepburn plays her mom in the movie. So that they have a couple of nice scenes together that must've been, uh, a fun set to be on. It's sort of an interesting uh, dynamic between the two of them. Um, Spencer Tracy is the the dad and he is, you know, very, um, you know, he, he plays this liberal character, a guy who is, has uh, seemingly, you know, fought for liberal ideas and, and represented uh, liberal causes for most of his life. But when he's confronted with this, this, uh, you know, possibility of interracial marriage in his own family, he's really like, uh, you know, cut to the quick and has to figure out whether or not he's going to give his, his um, blessing to this, uh, this union between this interracial couple. And um, I mean, this must've been a very, very big deal when this movie came out. I can't even imagine seeing a movie that deals so head on with a a topic like this um, in that period in the late 1960s, which obviously uh, a very, very fraught period in the United States. I mean, not, not that every period in the U S history has not been fraught in one way or another, but um, yeah, just very, uh, very international interracial relations uh, were outlawed in several States at that time too. Yeah. Which is crazy. Like uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the update on that is. Like I feel like there's, there's always, you hear, stats sometimes of like this crazy thing is that like everyone does is technically illegal in Mississippi or whatever. So like, I don't know if, if that's been completely, um, I don't know what you legalized all across the United States, but obviously it should be. And, um, just looking back on this movie, um, it's just kind of amazing that it, it exists and came out in, in the period in which it did. And I thought it was very, very good, very well done, very well acted all the way around. So, um, guess who's coming to dinner is, uh, definitely worth a watch if you've never seen it. Uh, what else? I watched, uh, Waffles and Mochi, the first episode of this new show that is streaming on Netflix. This is the show that stars, uh, Michelle Obama and a, like a Muppet puppet type character. I'm not sure if the the Henson company is involved in this. So I don't know if the Muppet uh, name is like technically legally allowed to be, (laughs) to be uttered in that context, but um, it's a very, very cute show. It's definitely aimed at kids. Um, Waffles and and Mochi are these two, I guess we'll just call them puppet characters who uh, I guess live in some sort of like frozen tundra and want nothing more than to be cooks and chefs and like learn how to cook things. But the show opens with them just cooking ice cubes because it's so cold where they are. That's all they have access to. And then they get whisked away into uh, a a huge city and Michelle Obama's character uh, runs a, um, like a a giant grocery store. And these two puppet characters get whisked into this action and, and have to learn, you know, the history of tomatoes and how all these different foods work together and whether a tomato is a, a fruit or a vegetable and all these sort of like, very basic, um, very, you know, cute little, um, little side adventures that they go on. Uh, and it's just an adorable show. So if you have kids and you're, 
you know, they're remotely interested in food and or very cute characters, uh, I would definitely recommend checking out Waffles and Mochi. It may not be for for everybody, but I think if you're, you know, type of person like Chris who just like loves watching, you know, cooking stuff here and there, I think this I've is actually be... I've actually watched all of this because oh, what did you think about it? It's very charming. It's very fun. Um, it, it's definitely for kids, but uh, I I I had fun watching it. It's, it's yeah, there's, it's a there's... cute show. Very cute. There's 10 episodes and I've only seen the first one, but um, yeah, it's, it's on Netflix right now. Waffles and Mochi, if you want to check that out. And then uh, finally, I watched a movie called The Exterminating Angel, um, which I'd never heard of before. It came out in 1962 and it was written and directed by uh, Luis Buñuel. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, it was sort of a, a famous, uh, I guess, international director, you know, a, a famous figure in, in film history. He directed the movie with the uh, where the eye gets Lichia sliced. Andalou that one yes yeah you probably if you went to film school or anything you've probably encountered some of his work before um i'm not super familiar with like his filmography i think i i mostly just know it from uh that and uh that obscure object of desire i think is the name of the movie that i've seen but uh i had never heard of this film before and this is a movie that follows a group of wealthy guests finding themselves unable to leave after a lavish dinner party and the chaos that ensues afterwards that's what wikipedia says um so it's, it's, yeah, this, it's set, I think in, well, I don't know if it actually says what year it's supposed to be set, but uh, it's just a bunch of super well-dressed rich people in this like giant mansion and they all find themselves in this room. And then for some reason, there is like a, a uh, mental barrier that pops up for all of them where the, the party that they attend is over, uh, dinner has been served, you know, drinks have been had, everybody is is done with the party and like people are ready to go home, but they just physically cannot cross the barrier to exit this room. So they just, all of them, you know, just decide, all right, let's, let's just stick around here. And like slowly they all sort of acknowledge this group delusion that they're having. And it's a very strange movie. And it sort of is like one of those, um, you know, watching it in the in the context of the pandemic, it sort of feels like an ultimate pandemic movie because everybody is just trapped inside this room and having to deal with each other and how, um, you know, sort of savage and, and uh, very like Lord of the Flies sort of uh, situations uh, emerge over time because they are in that room for a long, long time. Um, and it's it's kind of this like blistering critique of the upper class in, uh, in Spain, I think, where like, you know, people... Uh, the upper class is constantly looking down on and, and trashing uh, lower class people and, and um, you know, just look sneering down their noses. But this movie sort of puts them in uh, a position where, um, you know, like basically like uh, don't cast the stone at glass houses or whatever that, that phrase is. Like, you know, if, if you had to deal with this, the sorts of, um, you know, insane uh, real life scenarios that, that these poor people that you look down upon have to deal with. Here's what happens to you when you're put in a, in a position where you're not just like uh, buoyed by your wealth and privilege. So um, it's a really interesting movie. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever watch it again, but uh, it's called The Exterminating Angel. And if you're interested in checking it out, you can do that. I think it is on, uh, oh, actually, I, I, Watched it on uh, Turner Classic Movies. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere, but I'll, yeah. I'll look that up while you talk about the next thing. I know it's part of the Criterion Collection, but I'm not sure if it's part of the like service. It's like you know part of the physical Criterion mm. Collection. Yes. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, it is. It is streaming on the Criterion Channel right now. Okay. Uh, well, Brad went to Taco Bell, and they did not allow him to leave, so he had to eat a lot of stuff. Brad, tell us about it. 
Oh no, I definitely did not go and sit in a Taco Bell. So <laughs> I, I definitely left. They did not stop me from leaving. Um, but I, but I did go through the drive-through at Taco Bell not too long ago because uh, Taco Bell recently brought back the quesalupa. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the quesalupa is uh, it's a chalupa, except in between the like the the crunchy chalupa shell, they've put cheese inside of the shell, essentially. So it's kind of like a a, uh, a quesadilla mixed with a chalupa, hence quesalupa. Um, you know, it's uh, it's basically just a chalupa with a lot more cheese. And for me, as somebody who loves cheese, that's perfect. Uh, I liked this when it was released a, a while back, and it's been forever since it was on the menu again. So I was very happy to uh, see it back on the menu and uh, have it at Taco Bell again. So if you were like me, you should go get one because I don't know how long it's going to be there. And usually these kinds of things are for a limited time. So make sure you get a quesalupa if you haven't already. And I don't understand why they take something like this away. It, it sounds like they have the ingredients to always make that i feel like it's the same thing like with the mcrib and stuff like that where if you if you take it away every now and then it creates demand so once it's back everyone's like oh the mcrib is back we don't get this all the time ah false scarcity yeah there you go um i also tried a uh, so there's two quote-unquote new doritos um out there so you, you remember back in like i don't know if it was the mid to late 90s but there was doritos 3ds which were essentially doritos but they were like a, a puff version of the chip um, and they're, they're back, but they have updated the flavors because um, the, before it was just regular nacho cheese, regular cool ranch. And now what they've done is they've made Doritos 3d crunch, but they're like have a little bit more of a kick to them. So they have uh, spicy ranch and they have uh, chili cheese nacho. I haven't found the spicy ranch one yet, but I did just recently get the chili cheese nacho. Um, and it's, it's not uh, super spicy. I'm not a big spicy fan, so like uh, I was worried that it might be just have a little too much uh, of a kick to it. But it's it's just the right um, spice to just mix it up a little bit and make the the nacho cheese flavor just pop a little bit more. Um, not as spicy as like the the spicy sweet nacho that there is out there in like I think it's the purple Doritos bag. Um, so yeah, I will say that the the taste of the chip itself feels a little bit different. I don't know if it, they have to had do like a different recipe in order to make a chip that is like a 3d puff chip like that as opposed to just the regular tortilla corn chips that doritos usually does um but they're they're solid they're solid and i'll i'll see if i can find when it. you say puff chip i think of like like uh what do you call those things those cheese things like the the circular worm cheese oh like, like those wisps no uh cheesy poofs yeah kind of like cheesy poofs. oh but you're not talking about that. You're talking about like it, it's the shape of like a triangle, and there's like air inside. Of yeah, it. exactly. Like it's not like a it's not like puff corn or like or anything like that, or like a Cheeto. Yeah, Cheeto is what I was looking for, like a Cheeto. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what what else do you need? And then uh, I'm go I'm going to bat for for Aldi again because Aldi has some cool stuff, guys. If you guys have an Aldi near you, you should seriously check it out for just cool uh varied grocery items from candy to like frozen stuff and just uh really cool flavors of, of things um their easter candy is out now and they have a company um from germany called chakur that um has like supplied them with a whole bunch of different easter candies and one of the things that um i kind of lament a little bit about the united states is as many different kinds of snacks and candies and flavored things there are there are some things here that just aren't as good as they are like across the pond or in other countries. Uh, and that is especially true when it comes to 
chocolates because uh, in the UK and around Europe, they have a bunch of really great chocolates. And one of the things at Easter that they have that's really cool that we don't have in the same way is um, like we have like Cadbury cream eggs and Reese's eggs. And recently there's been like Oreo eggs. But one of the things that they have um, in Europe are these these eggs that are filled with like a little bit more of a, a smooth um, cream and they include it. It's, it's a hollowed out chocolate egg with the cream inside of it. And they include like a little plastic spoon for you to like eat the cream out of it as if it were like a poached egg uh, essentially or, or something like something like that. Is that that's what that egg is called, right? The one that you sit in, in the little dish and you crack it open. Uh, I think so, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, that, yeah, I think you're right. Oh. Yeah, soft boiled. So it's kind of like that where you like take the there's like a cracked top that you um bite off and then you can scoop the cream out and so they had like these they have a they had a cookies and cream one they had a vanilla cream one um and then along with stuff like that they had these this like little package of uh chocolate wafer eggs um which are like those wafer cookies that you find that have like the cross stitch pattern but they're they're in the shape of an egg and they have vanilla and chocolate cream inside them one is just a plain wafer egg the other one is covered uh, in chocolate. And so they just have a lot of cool uh, things like that at all the like around the holidays, uh, specifically European and um, kind of stuff, especially when it comes to candy. So if you have an Aldi, I just recommend checking it out, you know, like every other week and seeing what they have there because they have some cool stuff. Okay. That brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at slashhome.com. You can find this podcast in Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter.com. And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Peter. Peter. Uh, yes? Uh, I, I missed last week's water cooler because of work stuff, which means that, unfortunately, a gargantuan book of insult, offense, and infrontery, sharp retorts, repost, cost eclipse, and input put down by Louis A. Safian. It's feeling very rusty. It feels like it hasn't had, has exercised in two weeks now. Do you know what that means? Uh, I, I, like that you're not going to open it? Oh, no, no. I feel uh, bad for it? No, Peter, come on. we, we got to stretch these muscles. we got to shake off all the nerves. It's it's time for double insults. Double, twice yeah, around yeah. the table today, guys. Twice. I've looked to, to um, a section that, that defines us all. Page 339. Juvenile delinquents. Uh, Peter, the only sure cure for his kids... Oh, sorry, I misread this. Starting over. Mm. <laughs> this is going for really well. Peter Serena, the only cu- the only sure cure for kids like him is birth control. Ooh, jeez. Wow. wow. Harsh. HT, she's so tough, she's been turned down by every reform school in the country. Oh. Huh. Yeah. She's incapable of being reformed. Uh, ben... He's so tough, he makes his teacher stay after school. <laughs> uh, Brad, the teacher asked him, who shot Lincoln? And he snarled, I don't squeal on nobody. These kids oh, sound wow. awesome. <laughs> yeah, none of these sound like insults. These sound like really cool kids. We're badasses. Well, Chris, Chris says he's a delinquent because he was repressed as a child. His parents punished him when he sawed the cat in half and gave his grandmother the hot foot. What? Oh my god. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> too much going on in that one. Way too long. Uh, well, do we agree that he, that's the, the cool kid? The cool kid who saws a cat in half oh and gives god. his grandmother the hot foot? 
I don't know what the hot foot is. I mean, maybe not the cat. Thing. I don't know what the hot foot is. Yeah, what is a hot foot? I'm imagining like it's like something with fire. I don't really care. Even, <laughs> it's like, is that like one of those things where like they used to brand you? That's you, not. Like, no, no. Let's keep going. Let's <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know. Uh, Brad, can you Google this while I can start around again, please? Mm-hmm. Google hot foot. I, I've already looked. Brad, it. Oh, don't. Oh, no ben, one this. ben no. what is a hot foot? <laughs> I'm I'm torn between. Don't uh, encourage this. Let's move on. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to do it, Chris, because otherwise we're going to be here forever. The hot foot is a prank where the prankster sets the victim's shoelaces or shoe on fire with a match or light. God. Wait, who, who does that? Really cool delinquent kids, that's who. Yeah. Speaking, if they saw the cat in half. Speaking of cool delinquent kids, when Peter was eight years old, his parents pleaded with him to run away from home. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, HT, her parents almost lost her as a child. Unfortunately, they didn't take her far enough into the woods. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Well, Ben, Ben, there's a kid who never fails to display his pest manners. <laughs> Is that just like a straight up pun and like mixed in with all these other badass things? Man. Uh, well, Brad is hardly weak when he doesn't come home from school with a note demanding good excuse for his presence. <laughs> Okay. Uh, this one more. Uh, well, why are you interrupting? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, so th- that is the end point of the podcast. But Brad, you wanted to record something over. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, not everyone needs to be here for it too. If you don't want to, but there literally was one more joke left, though. I haven't done Chris's last one. <laughs> so it's okay. We can. We don't. So I'm we gonna, don't need. I'm it. gonna say it, and Peter can splice around it. Chris hangs out in such a tough neighborhood that a cat with a tail is considered a tourist. Why are all my cats? <laughs> 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 Poor Chris. Okay, there's the end point. Brad, I'm, I'm confused of how much you want to record. Do you want to just record the person's name? Yeah, I, 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 if you can just splice it in there, because I, I, I realize I said the name wrong. Okay, just say the name, and I'll try my best to splice it in there. <laughs> it's, it's, I hope it doesn't sound weird when I do it. Um, so, uh, Maxwell Simpkins. Okay, say another say time. It, yeah, yeah, several different inflections. Say it in a sentence. Brad. Say it in like uh, the sentence or like a similar sentence to what you probably said. Uh, this kid, Maxwell Simpkins. Maxwell Simpkins. Okay. Maxwell Keep Simpkins. Maxwell Simpkins. Okay, okay we, we probably have enough. <laughs> okay. This is what it's like to work shot. in cartoons. <laughs> I, I should leave this in the podcast. Just yeah, for just, people. just leave all this 